He wiped the steam from the bathroom mirror in a circular motion and looked at himself. He could feel the water dripping down his back from his shoulder-length blonde hair. He secured his towel around his waist and cracked the bathroom door open and yelled out, Ma, can you iron the shirt I left on my bed for me? Hurry up, Greg, I need to use the bathroom, his older sister complained while lurking outside the bathroom door. Shut up, Jeannie, I'm getting ready for a date, he exclaimed as he pushed the door shut again. Ooh, who's the girl, Greggy? Greg smiled to himself from behind the closed door. Just a girl from around here, he answered. Well, why is she going out with you? Gross, she chided him from the other side. He laughed out loud. I have no idea. She must have great taste in guys. He combed his hair and brushed his teeth and swung the door open. His sister was still standing there, and she immediately brushed by him, entering the bathroom. Finally, jerk, she said as she slammed the door behind her. He heard her yell at him through the door. Put the seat down, God! He went into his room and pulled on a pair of jeans and sat on the bed, and he put his socks on. He stood and grabbed a bottle of the Givenchy Gentleman Cologne that he had just bought specifically for this night off of his dresser. He squirted the fine-smelling liquid three times, one on each side of his neck and then finally on his chest. He ran his belt through the loops on his jeans and secured the buckle. He stood in front of his dresser mirror and gave himself a once-over. Looking good, man, he said aloud to himself. He grabbed his wallet and keys off the dresser and left his room. He could smell whatever his mother was cooking for dinner down in the kitchen as he descended down the stairs. He entered the kitchen and saw his mother perched in front of the stove, stirring what was contained in one of the multiple pots that was on the burners. He walked up behind her and kissed her on the cheek. Thanks, Ma, he said as he grabbed his immaculately ironed shirt off the ironing board that was situated in the corner of the kitchen. The woman was a saint, he thought to himself as he buttoned up his shirt He was a lean kid. The shirt fit snugly, yet perfectly. He left the top three buttons open and tucked the shirt into his jeans without having to unbutton them. Dinner's almost ready, sweetheart. Eugenia Godsick informed her only son, her pride and joy. Ma, I told you I have a date tonight with a girl from school, which wasn't exactly true. She was actually 19, but he didn't feel like explaining any of this to his mother. Oh, I I forgot, she answered. She hadn't forgotten. She a nice girl, she inquired. Yeah, Ma, she's a real nice girl. I've been building up the courage to ask her out for a while, and when I did, she said yes. So I gotta go. He planted another kiss on his mother's cheek. I love you, Ma. I'll see you later. His mother, feeling bittersweet about her little boy growing up so quickly and dating girls, said to him, be a good boy. I will, Ma. And with that, he walked out of the kitchen into the living room, which was dark aside from the glistening Christmas tree, which served as a constant reminder that he had to get his Christmas shopping done as the holiday was fast approaching. He grabbed his jacket off the hook by the front door and hustled down to his pride and joy, his 66 Pontiac. The car was stone cold inside, He slipped the keys in the ignition and turned the engine over. The car came alive with a dull roar. He turned on the radio and searched for some rock and roll while he waited for the car to warm up. He reached in his back pocket and grabbed his wallet, 
flipped it open and pulled out the small piece of scratch paper that he had made sure was still there at least 10 times over the last week, which she had written her address on. He glanced down at it and noted the address. He put the car in drive and off he went. The date had been a great success. He had gathered the courage to give her a goodnight kiss, which she had accepted, after he had pulled back up to her house to drop her off. That was at about 11.30 p.m. He told her he'd call her tomorrow as she exited the car. He waited until she made it safely into her house before he pulled away. He had now reached the point of the evening that he had not been looking forward to. He had to go meet his new boss to deliver him some weed, which he didn't have. He was already on thin ice with this guy because he had missed his first couple of days of work after he had been hired by PDM. His boss had given him a second chance, and on his second day in the job, they had him dig a trench in the crawl space. It had been a hellish task because there was only about two feet of room to work down there. He had surfaced about an hour later in a really pissy mood. One of his coworkers, a guy named Mike, had been chuckling as he watched Greg pull himself out of the trapdoor that led to the crawl. Mike had told him that he sure was glad that John hadn't shit-canned him, because otherwise, he would have been the asshole down there digging. Greg didn't find that nearly as amusing as Mike had, and asked if he could use the phone. He made a call to confirm his date for this upcoming Saturday. Rossi had been creeping around him when he was on the phone, and apparently had overheard him arguing with whomever he was talking to, and telling them that he would score some grass for the weekend. Greg was upset when he hung up, and that he said that he had to go, and he left, without saying another word, to anyone. Apparently, Rossi had told his boss about this call, because his boss had called later, and asked if he could get him a little weed, which was about an ounce. Not wanting to disappoint, he said that he could, and he said that he'd beaten him around Devon and Northwest Highway at around 1 a.m. on Saturday to deliver the weed. He was nervous because he hadn't scored. He was just going to have to tell him that something happened with his dealer and that he couldn't get it. Hopefully, he wouldn't be too pissed. He got to the area around 12.30 and parked his car, got out and found a payphone and called his boss and asked him to pick him up around 1. He walked back to his car and waited until about 12.55 a.m., at which point he got out of his car and walked away from it. At right around 1 a.m., he saw his boss's car approach. He pulled up in front of where Greg was standing. Greg pulled the door open and got in the front seat. How's it going, kid? You got that lid for me? Greg looked at his boss. He already looked like he was high. Uh, no, sorry, it, it fell through. His boss looked at him for a solid 10 seconds without saying a word. Well then, uh, why the hell did you drag me out here in the middle of the night to meet you? Greg had no answer. Casey put the car in gear and pulled away from the curb. Don't worry about it, kid. We'll figure out how to make this right. I got some back at the house anyway. That was December 12th of 1976, and it was the last time that John or Eugenia Godsick saw their son, Gregory John Godsick, born March 23rd, 1959, 
ever again. Like John Bukovich before him, the Godsicks reported their son missing when he didn't come home that night. On the following Monday, Mrs. Godsick called Gacy about her son. Shortly thereafter, the Chicago police called Gacy. And finally, Greg's girlfriend called Gacy. He told all of them the same thing, that he hadn't seen him since Thursday. The Chicago police, they never followed up, ever. The Godsicks, however, never stopped looking for their son or hoping for their son's return. His Christmas gifts from that year that he went missing were kept in a hall closet, unopened, for three years. That is, until Greg's body was identified by dental records after his remains were unearthed from Gacy's crawl space in early 1979. Gregory John Godsick was John Wayne Gacy's third known victim. Uh, I don't remember him telling. Back to my phone, I picked him up at uh, North, Northwood Highway, Bonai Avenue. He called me at the house. He was supposed to be getting uh, a lift for me. And uh, had, I was at home that night watching the late movie. He was supposed to get a hold of me early. That's why I was home that night, waiting for him to call. So he got somewhere to pick it up. And, uh, I don't know, I think he, he called around 11.30 or even at midnight or after midnight. He called. And told me to, to pick him up. When I got there, he didn't have it. So, and then he wanted me to take him to his car, because he, he wasn't with his car. I don't recall where his car was. His car wasn't there. We were drinking and we were smoking some grass that was at the house. He had a couple of joints on him, too. This is when, do you recall what date this was? Oh. Was it already, uh, you had already known Graham and Ross? Yeah, I think it was in November. Sam or Rossi with you? You pick Godsick up and recall that? No, I think Rossi had worked that Saturday during the day, but I don't recall. No. You recall bringing uh, Godsick back to your place specifically? Yeah. As far as I know, we were, <laughs> at, were at the house alone. I don't recall anybody else being there. So as far as I know, well, then I would have remembered it. I don't think there was any... What I'm telling you is I don't think anybody else was there, to my knowledge. So we were drinking and smoking at my house, yeah. He was found... See, I found him in, in the... On Sunday morning, I found him in the, in the living room. Well, his underwear, but he was dead. What's the last thing you remember about that evening? Drinking and smoking. Talking about it. Basically the same thing I said last time. You remember partying and then you didn't remember anything and then you woke up the next morning and uh, you recall whether or not he had a rope around his neck. I don't 
Was God's like an employee? Yeah. How long did he work with you? Two or three days. He had he had started one week and then he didn't he didn't work. He didn't show up for work. And then I told him he, either he starts coming every day or, or quit the goddamn job because we wouldn't put him with it. I think he came back and worked at the. I think it was on a Thursday that I had talked to him about grass. On Friday, he had worked with, with Rossi and Cram. Or Rossi and uh, Randy Stewart. Could have worked with those two. Anyhow, he, he supposedly went to my house, made a phone call at 3 o'clock or so, and then took off like a bat out of hell. He was all upset and couldn't work. I don't. I think it was over his girlfriend and this older guy who beat the shit out of him. When this happened, what car was Rossi driving? Uh, I think. I think he had his white Oldsmobile convertible. It's not six car. Sixty-five Oldsmobile. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I don't know. See that? That's supposition too. I don't know. If he had that car or not. Did uh, Godzik ever party with you and uh, Rossi or Cram? No. He ever worked with, uh, so he only worked a few days for you, really. He worked one or two days at Austin and Irving at the uh, Bruce and Chance Drugstore. We did that job. Then he, I think he worked one night at Sport Mart. Gotta remember, he only worked part time. He only worked two, three hours. He got out of school at one thirty in the afternoon or something like that. I know some counselor wanted me to make a report out on stuff like that. How the hell did you make a report on somebody if he hadn't worked that much? On Thursday or that Friday when they were working, or I don't, I don't know when. But I think he had dug down a base and dug his own. I, I think God said. Gatsik may have dug his own grave. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 14. The Creeps Crawl Space. We had left off with Gacy in custody as the 21st of December had given way to the 22nd. He had just given a statement to Albrecht and Hackmeister. Mike had done his best to elicit as much information from Gacy as he could, while simultaneously being pounded over the head by tales of murder and mayhem by the man that he had just shared meals with over the last 10 days. Shell-shocked probably doesn't even come close to accurately describing the cop's mental state as the words poured from Gacy's mouth. Gacy had asked about Cram and Rossi being in custody, which they weren't. He then began talking about a bunch of boys that had killed themselves while in his presence and how these boys ultimately ended up buried in his crawl space. 
He certainly made many incriminating statements. However, I don't know that he actually ever confessed to killing anyone in his first statement. So while Gacy's being questioned in custody, the search of his home, and in particular his crawl space, was going on at the same time. It was Cook County Sheriff's Police Evidence Tech Dan Ginty who uncovered the first bone in Gacy's crawl. And it was this discovery that allowed them to finally charge Gacy with murder. Of who they were unsure of at this juncture. But little did the men located within Gacy's crawl space know that they were going to be digging for days for weeks before they finished uncovering all of Gacy's horrible secrets. We interviewed Dan Ginty in order to try and get an understanding of the magnitude of just exactly how surreal and horrific being the excavator of Gacy's graveyard actually was. As a typical husband, I had not gotten anything for my wife for Christmas. And uh, I said to her, uh, what would you like? And she said, I want to get some dresses. I got no decent dresses to wear to work. Okay, well, we'll go get you something, okay? Because I'm not buying that for you without you putting it on and trying it. So we were all scheduled to go. We were going to go after dinner. And uh, I'd been telling her how we were doing, working on all this stuff. And the phone rings. No cell phones house phone <laughs> rings and it's Greg and he goes Danny we got a second search warrant we're going to execute it at 8 o'clock and uh, can you come and I said yeah I'll be there and I told Carol okay right, I understand she said wait, she's a miracle worker She living with me after all this stuff that I've had to do in my life uh, she's stuck with me here you know and uh, she's been very helpful all of my whole uh, our whole married time 52 years were coming up on. So anyway, uh, I go over there and meet up with them. And we're all in there. A whole bunch of people, whole bunch of people are there. And uh, But nobody's going in the crawl space because it's obviously yucky. And, and, and it was in the closet of that bedroom that had been remodeled. So it was basically right in the middle of the house, open. There was no door on it or anything. And I looked down in there, there's no no floor covering either. And I looked down in the hall with my flashlight and here the bastard had unplugged the sump pump, which was right below there, and it was full of water. It had flooded. Ah, uh, you blankety blank, you know. And so I plug it back in. And again, no one else is looking at this at all. They're all running around upstairs and, um, so I go out to the car, get my fireman's boots on, my coveralls, fireman's boots, get my flashlight. And uh, by this time I get back in, it's pumped a lot of the water out. So I go drop down in there and I, climb, I crawl over to my left and start going towards the middle underneath. The, there's a beam running across the length of the house. And... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I go around the middle stanchion that's holding the beam up. And as I'm going, there's a single hair sticking up out of the ground, blonde hair. And they look at it, they go, hmm, okay. And, uh, you know, uh, in television, the guy 
who's doing this work always knows what's going on. He's just driven, right? Well, I'm driven, but I don't know what the hell's going on. And and I crawl along, and here's the empty bags of where the lime had been in there and thrown around. And against the south wall in the east corner, there's a long depression, and it's kind of caved in along there, like a linear cave-in. And it looks like a dry lake bed, sort of. It's cracked and stuff. And I look at that and go, what's that all about? And I crawl back around and go to the other side. And I got to go under a heat pipe, which is hanging down, you know, what do they call them? You know, the pipes that carry the, yeah, a duct duct is hanging down. And and a piece of concrete is tipped up on its corner, you know, pretty big. And um, I crawl over that and kind of work my way over into the southwest corner. And I'm looking around, and there's a handful of black dirt, pure black dirt thrown up on the wall. Oh, and and then there's three puddles, two of which are a murky purple, and one of which is clear. And when I shine the light on the clear one, there's these thin, tiny, thin worms I've never seen anything like it before or since. Red worms that go back into the muck because there's this lime there. And what the hell are these worms eating? This house is at least 20 years old. And oh, I have my entrenching tool, army entrenching tool that folds up the short thing, you know. So I stick it in by this muddy puddle and it's muck. Stick it in a second time and comes up with like little grains of rice floating in the in the water and I go you motherfucker because I know that that's adipocere do you know what adipocere is it's when a body is immersed in the water for a long period of time the flesh the fat and the uh, the tissue turns to a soapy like substance you could have a body floating in the water submerged for a long period of time and look at them and they'd look perfect. You could tell exactly who they were and everything. Get them up in the air and they basically fall apart. So what I was seeing and what I recognized having handled floaters was this adipocere that had broken up and it looked like rice floating there. In the third shovel, I hit what felt like a a brick or a, a drain tile or something like that and I pry it up, and it's an arm bone. And I, I call up to the throng that's all waiting up above, and I go, I found one, charge him. And go, is it peace? And I go, oh no, this guy's been here a long time. And uh, with that, everything changed. And I called Daramo. Don, I think we may have a a basement full of kids here. So the excavation ends for the evening as they begin to realize that they were in fact facing a monumental task and needed to formulate some type of plan in attacking it. The gruesome work ahead would continue, but in the morning. Meanwhile, back at the station, Gacy's first statement has been taken and his attorneys have finally shown up. They proceed to have a couple of lengthy discussions with their client. 
What was said in those meetings remains a mystery as Amaranti doesn't address these discussions in his book. And he continues to refuse to be interviewed for this podcast. What we do know is that both Amaranti and Stevens avail their client to the police to speak openly in his second interview while they are present. I've made very clear in past episodes exactly what my opinion of this tactic employed by his lawyers was and is. Now, it's time to actually hear what he says to the boys of the Delta unit while in the presence of his attorneys. This statement was taken on December 22nd, 1978, starting at 3.30 a.m. Present at the interview was John Gacy, his attorneys, Sam Amaranti and Leroy Stevens, Desplaines Police Officers Albrecht, Hackmeister, Schultz, and Robinson, Cook County State's Attorney Investigator Greg Badeau, Cook County Sheriff's Officer Earl Lundquist. At around 2 a.m. on December 22nd, 1978, Mr. Gacy's attorneys, in speaking with reporting officers, indicated that Gacy wanted to take the police to the location where the bodies were buried. This was to be done after Gacy had spoken with his sister, who was being brought to the Displains police station at that time period. At 3.30 a.m., same date, Gacy, attorneys Amaranti and Stevens, and several police officers gathered in the interview room in the Displains police station. Gacy was going to advise the police on what locations we would be going to and how many burial sites there were. Reporting officers sat at a table directly across from Gacy, with Mr. Stevens seated at reporting officer's right. Reporting officer had a notepad to take down the locations that Mr. Gacy was about to give. Mr. Amaranti and Mr. Stevens, in speaking to the police, indicated that Gacy wanted to make a statement to the police officers. One of the attorneys asked John if he understood his Miranda rights and that he didn't have to say anything unless he wanted to. Gacy answered that he understood and wanted to speak with us. Mr. Stevens then told Gacy to say what he wanted to say. The following is a summary as given by John Gacy to the reporting officer at the above described time. So this is the first paragraph of the second statement that Mike Albrecht prepared after the fact based on his notes. Over the course of this podcast, I have diligently tried to inform you of what should be occurring from a defense attorney's perspective in this type of circumstance. If I were writing a what not to do guide for defense attorneys, this particular paragraph from Albrecht's report would be the opening paragraph of that book. I will ask you, did you find anything about what I just read to you to be not just a bit off but rather a bizarro world representation of what should have happened in that room? If you're thinking, why in the hell are Gacy's own attorneys advising him of his Miranda rights? I want to give you a virtual gold star on your shirt because you nailed it. That fact alone, that his lawyers are telling him what the cops are forced to tell him by the Supreme Court, says it all about the effectiveness of his counsel at this juncture. These guys should have walked into that station after the first statement had been given, furious and demanding to see their client, and then shutting down any further communication between 
Gacy and the cops. Not what happened. Not even close. I asked my father what he would have done had he been involved at this point. This is what his response was. But don't talk to anyone, the jail, anywhere, your family, anybody, because they call me subpoenaed. This paperwork is uh, complicated, and I don't, uh, I argued the, there were two, several motions, one to suppress statements and one, maybe a couple to suppress statements and a couple to suppress the uh, evidence for the search warrants. I wrote them all, and we had discussions about the, the statements, Sam and I. Do you, do you want to elaborate on those discussions or <laughs> not? really. Not really. <laughs> okay. So back from what should have been to what actually was, this is what Gacy tells everybody in that room. And just so you know, I am reading this report verbatim, typos and all. In 1974, and this is an editorial note, uh, 1974 is scratched out and the number 72 is handwritten in on this report, which is a copy of the actual report, which we will have posted on defensediaries.com, by the way. In 1972 is when the killing started. After Gacy made this statement of 1974 is when the killing started, Mr. Stevens interjected and asked John, if it wasn't so, that he couldn't remember what happened to him prior to 1974. So let me get this straight. His lawyer is now stopping him in the middle of his confession to correct him to make sure that it's worse than it was when he actually stated it. Okay, we're clear on that. Gacy nodded in agreement with the statement made by Mr. Stevens. It was observed by reporting officer when Gacy was speaking with his sister in another interview room, he began talking about meeting with his friends that he had previously mentioned in 1971 and 1972. In continuing with Mr. Gacy's statements, there had been between 25 to 30 murders, all related to homosexuals or bisexuals. None of his victims were females. All of the murders involved some proposition or talk of money. They all willingly came into his car and into his home. All of the victims were killed in the house. In 1978, there were five victims, all dumped in the river. Three were taken there in the van during the summer, July, August, September. The last one before the Peast Boy was from Elmwood Park. He was into sadism. He wanted $20 after each thing he did. He wanted more money. He started playing games. He ended up over the bridge like the rest. The Peast Boy didn't know what would happen at the house as far as sex was concerned, but he wanted to make easy money too. He worked at Nissan Pharmacy. He ran up to Gacy's car to ask him about a summer job. The boy said he would do almost anything for money, but he lied. Gacy put a rope around his neck. The Peast Boy asked why he was putting a rope around his neck. Why did Peast ask why he was putting the rope around his neck? He was stupid. Gacy twisted the rope until he stopped breathing. Gacy then heard the phone ring and went to answer it. 
When he returned to the bedroom, Peace was on the floor, apparently dead. Gacy then returned to his office to take phone messages off of his recorder and finished up some business that he had to tend to. Gacy indicated that he called Nissan Pharmacy to clear up something on why he didn't go somewhere. He was not real clear about that phone call. Gacy then indicated that he spoke to Max the plumber from Skokie and Ed Fry, an electrician from Hoffman Estates. Rich Raphael called him to ask why Gacy did not keep his appointment at 9 p.m. He told Raphael he didn't go because he was too tired, which was really a lie. He then let his dog out, went to the bathroom, and then checked his phone messages again. Everything that I'm reading you right now is verbatim from Mike Albrecht's notes. As you can tell by the writing style in terms of the way that it reads, that's simply how Mike wrote. So Mike would take notes when Gacy would say something, and then when Mike was writing his report, he was just writing very short, simple sentences. Again, this harkens back to the issue as to why these statements weren't recorded. We'd be having a much different conversation about what was said by Gacy and how to evaluate what was said by Gacy as opposed to reading through Mike's short truncated version of what he believes that Gacy said during that interview. Let's continue. He learned his aunt had called and told Gacy that he should come to the hospital. Gacy went to the hospital. When Gacy arrived, his uncle had died at about 10.30. Gacy indicated that he arrived at the hospital right around 11 o'clock because it was a shift change, and he asked questions to a very heavy-set nurse. When Gacy learned about his uncle's death, he went to his aunt's house because she was apparently very upset. He went to his aunt's house and found that she was not home, but instead was next door at Gacy's cousin's. Gacy went to the cousin's house, consoled his aunt for a short time, and then went home and spoke with his sister. Gacy spoke with his sister, asking her whether they should call his mother long distance and tell her about the uncle's death. They decided there was nothing that could be done by his mother at that time, and they would call her in the morning. Gacy then retired for the evening. At 6.30 a.m., Gacy was to meet Richard. Gacy indicated that Richard was always in a hurry. At 6 a.m., Gacy took the boy off of the bed and put him in the upstairs in the attic next to the stairway. He slept the night in the bed with the boy and then went to work and worked a complete day. Tuesday evening, Gacy went to dinner with his aunt and her daughter. At 8.30 p.m., that evening, he called Mike Rossi to have him come over and they were going to go look at Christmas trees. That should ring a bell. After the phone call, two Desplaines police officers came to his home, the asshole and Jim. They wanted to talk to him about the missing Peast boy. He said that he was too busy and that he had more important things to do. Gacy would try to come to the station later that night. Kozenzak kept badgering him to come into the station. He had no consideration for me. He didn't consider that I lost my uncle. Kozenzak then left and Gacy brought the body down from the attic and laid it in the hallway. After laying the body in the hallway, Rossi rang his back doorbell with the intentions of going with Gacy to Rhodey's to look at Christmas trees. Gacy told Rossi he couldn't go now, and Rossi then left. Gacy indicated that he brought his car toward the front door to put the body in the trunk. He got stuck in ice and decided to pull the car around to the back door. He went back in the house, put the body in an orange blanket, and placed it in the trunk of his car. Gacy said that he thought 
He was higher than a kite at that time. Gacy got on 294 South to the I-55 to the bridge by the Kankakee Desplaines River. The first time he came to the bridge, a barge was passing beneath, and Gacy was not able to stop. He was to make two or three more passes on the bridge before he was able to stop. He kept on hearing on the CB that there was an unmarked squad, quote, smoky, end quote, on the bridge. He kept alternating between the north and southbound lanes. He was finally able to stop on the southbound inside lane. He flipped open the trunk, pulled the body out, and threw him over the bridge into the water. After dumping the body, Gacy drove on I-55 toward Old Chicago. While on 55, he threw the orange blanket. He knew that he had to get rid of the blanket, but wasn't sure why, because there was no bleeding by the victim. Therefore, there was no blood on the blanket. On 294 from 55, Gacy almost lost control of the car a few times, spinning out. He finally did lose control, spun out, and went into a ditch. A small highway truck stopped and helped. He wasn't able to help get Gacy out of the ditch. Gacy tried putting his spare tire under the car after jacking the car up, but still couldn't get out. Gacy got back into his car and fell asleep. At around 2 a.m., a LaGrange Towing Company tow truck stopped and pulled him out without any problem. After he got out of the ditch, he remembered he had to go see the asshole, meaning Lieutenant Kozenzak. He drove to the Displains Police Station and found that Lieutenant Kozenzak had left for the day. At 11 o'clock the next morning, he called the Displains Police Station and told them that he had had car problems, and that's why he didn't show up. Gacy then spoke of the victim just before peaced. He said he was called Joe. Joe liked bondage. Gacy didn't like that stuff. Gacy wanted to get blown, and that's all. Joe wanted more, and each time, he wanted more money. Gacy showed Joe the rope, which was only two feet long, and put it around Joe's neck. He tied the knots and twisted hard only two or three or four times. After the twist, Joe kept shaking and convulsing and then fell dead. Gacy put Joe in the trunk of his car and drove to the river. On the way, he picked up a hitchhiker going to Colorado. The hitchhiker said that he would have sex for some easy money. Gacy was initially interested and then changed his mind and then let the hitchhiker out without any advances towards sex. Gacy said that there are three others in the Desplaines River. One of the victims he picked up around Clark and Lawrence. The other two he picked up in Washington Park, or commonly known as Bughouse Square. All the rest of his victims were real hustlers. One victim pulled a knife and stole money from Gacy's wallet, and then said that he wasn't done with Gacy for sex. Gacy wasn't going to let him get away with that. Gacy showed him some magic with the rope, and then showed the trick on the victim's neck. Gacy said he didn't know his name or who he was. This victim is buried under the house. Gacy indicated that he had lost count from 74 to present on how many bodies are under the house. Gacy stabbed his first victim. He thought it was in December of 1974. Gacy then said, matter-of-factly, the name Jack Hanley, that's me. The first victim happened while he was married and his wife is at a girlfriend's home or in Minnesota. After he had sex with the victim, they went to bed. He woke up and saw the victim was coming at him with a knife. He stabbed at Gacy, hit him in the right forearm, 
They fought in case he got the knife from him. Casey stabbed him, killed the victim, and then buried him in the basement. Casey said that he was married at that time, but that didn't bother him. Casey then said he didn't like gay men or queens. Casey said, a man is a man, and he should stay that way. If a man didn't like girls, there was something wrong with him. Casey said he never hurt anyone while involved in any sex acts. Okay, so let's take a bit of a breather here. But wow, uh, any notion that Gacy didn't really admit to killing anybody in the first statement uh, has been completely eradicated by this second statement, and that's thanks in large part to his lawyers. He certainly admits to killing people in this one. Now, since we published the last few episodes, we've had a few people ask about why we are being so tough on Sam Amaranti. And our response is that we don't really think that we are. I mean, we are merely stating the facts as they actually occurred. And we are making observations from the perspective of a defense attorney. We would be doing a disservice to you as the listeners if we were doing anything else. We didn't create the situation. We are simply in a position that we are doing a deep dive into this case and how it was handled by law enforcement and the lawyers. And it just so happens that the fairy tale narrative that has been espoused for the past 40 years is exactly that a fairy tale, a work of fiction. The truth is much closer to a John Grisham novel, which I always think are so far fetched that I find them tough to read because I don't enjoy suspending disbelief when reading legal thrillers. But my God, from the planted evidence to get Gacy to his own lawyers throwing him to the wolves, it appears to me that the trial was nothing more than a formality, which is not how it should be, ever. It's in complete contravention to the principles of the Constitution. But for the purposes of this podcast, the truth that we have uncovered has turned out to be a hell of a lot more interesting than the fictional tale that we've all been told low these many years. I recently called the executive producer for Joe Berlinger, who's bringing out yet another Gacy documentary in March of next year. Yes, the very documentary that I pitched him two years ago. Well, he ran with it, except now I asked him, are you guys planning on puking up the same bullshit story that has always been told? Or are you including us in the story? Because the narrative has changed permanently, unequivocally, and indisputably. And we are the direct source for the true narrative being exposed. He didn't have an answer for me. That disturbed me deeply. I get how those who are involved with the case certainly don't like or even want to accept the truth as it now stands. But that's not their decision to make. We cannot alter the truth in life, no matter how it reflects on us as people or professionals. That's just not how it works. So we will continue to do what we are doing, and that is digging in as deeply and as thoroughly as we possibly can to figure out if in the Gacy case, the fix was in, and we mean completely and totally. So we still have about half the second statement to get through, which will happen on the next episode of Defense Diaries.
be sure to rate and review on your favorite platform. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at defensediaries.com and Twitter at defense underscore diaries and on our pathetic attempt at TikTok at Defense Diaries Podcast. Finally, as always, thank you for being dedicated listeners. We thank you guys for joining us because without you, I'd just be some old man talking about an old case. See you on the next episode. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know exactly where the body's at.